0: You can go you can go to Vegas and put it all on black on a roulette table and lose it all, but you can't invest in a startup. The rules about investing in the United States were written before most people had a landline telephone in their own house.
1: You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. A podcast for founders with ambitious ideas venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the sure Shot Entrepreneur. Today's guest is Jason Best. Jason Best is the managing partner and co-founder of Vector Fintech Partners. He's based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he was also previously instrumental in shaping the JOBS Act, and we're going to talk about that soon. Prior to becoming a VC, Jason was an entrepreneur twice, and he had two successful healthcare startup exits. Jason, welcome to the Shot sure Entrepreneur. Thank you, gopi
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Tell me about yourself, starting with how did you come to the Silicon Valley?
0: I came after grad school. I was doing a consulting job on the East Coast. I was miserable. I had a bunch of friends who were working in tech in the Bay Area, friends from grad school. And one day they had an intervention with me and said, you need to quit your job and move out here. It's the gold rush and you'll get a job and it'll work out. I did. (laughs) I packed up my car and drove across country and never looked back and was able to take my healthcare experience, which I had been doing prior to moving out to the Bay Area, and apply it to healthcare tech companies. That's the kind of operator and business person experience that I brought to bear in the dot-com area and beyond.
1: When was that, and how was your experience in the first few years in the Silicon Valley?
0: I arrived April 1st, 1998. I was here for the boom. I was here for the crash. I have all the scars on my back to show for it and learned a lot about the boom and the bust cycle. It's been certainly very instructive in the next companies I was a part of, and then also in my uh, career as an investor.
1: Well, this is very interesting. Since that time, a lot of things have changed in the Silicon Valley. How has uh, your journey evolved? What were some of the highlights?
0: I got really lucky, joined a, a small company that was acquired by, shortly after I joined by, Jim Clark's company, the founder of Netscape, called Healthion. And then that merged with WebMD and was then when we went public and during the dot com era. But the other kind of operator experience that I, we had a, a good outcome with was a company called Kinzer Software. I joined that. A friend of mine was the founder and he asked me to come in and help grow the business and scale it. We were able to bootstrap it up to 20 million in ARR before we sold it to a uh, majority stake to a private equity firm. I got a chance to really help on all the growth kind of functions around marketing and tech implementation, UX, UI design, BD and partnerships. And then after that, that's when I really started working on the Jobs Act. I started out, frankly, as a just a conversation at, at a friend's wedding and turned into a 460 day adventure in legalizing equity and debt crowdfunding in the United States.
1: Tell me about that. Like, How was the world at that time, before you started thinking about the JOBS Act as a legislation, what was the situation at that time for equity crowdfunding? What was prevalent? What were the problems?
0: Equity crowdfunding was illegal in the United States because of laws written in the 1930s. Those laws were put there to protect retail investors from what was happening in the 1930s, which is people going literally door to door, selling fake stock certificates to unsuspecting people with no understanding of the stock market. In the Great Depression, they put these laws in place that basically said, unless you were really rich, which in the in the 1930s was you had a $1 million net worth, that would be probably like a billionaire today, you were unable to buy and sell private securities. So that law was the law of gravity at the SEC in the United States and never, never changed. It was the impossible thing to change. Because in January 2011, when we started working on this kind of concept called regulation crowdfunding, which we had created this policy framework for, all of the attorneys we spoke with laughed and said, there's no way that's ever going to change at the SEC because it never has changed. And then we went to the SEC and we said, here's this great idea for helping to create jobs, innovation and entrepreneurship in the United States that does not cost any extra taxpayer money. And they also said, well, we're not going to make that kind of a change. Only way we're going to do that is if there's an act of Congress. That's where they sent us. And that's what we did.
1: Yeah, the definition of accredited investor and the numbers that qualify, all of those things haven't really evolved uh, perhaps since 1930s. While the market has evolved and people have become a lot more knowledgeable and there's more access to information, people are more aware of how to make investments. But yet in the other side, you can still buy lottery tickets and lose money. There are no regulations to prevent people from...
0: You can go. You can go to Vegas and put it all on black on a roulette table and lose it all. But, but you can't invest in, you couldn't invest in a startup. The rules about investing in the United States were written before most people had a landline telephone in their own house. Our argument was, look, this is in, we're living in the age of Facebook and Twitter, which back in 2011 were new things. And social media, we should be able to use those tools to market our, our companies, provide proper due diligence and disclosure information, have limits on the amount of money that retail investors can invest so they won't lose their life savings. And people will do it prudently. And over the last few years, we've definitely seen that happen.
1: So I'm sure you faced a lot of challenges while you were approaching this initiative. What were the challenges and how did you overcome them?
0: So it was myself and and a close friend of mine from grad school, Sherwood Neese. We worked on this journey together and neither of us had any experience with lobbying in Washington, D.C., but we were able to find other people along the way who were willing to invest their time and their energy in helping us to advance this conversation because they believed in the concept and they believed in, in us. On our own dime, with no outside support, we did this ourselves. And we lobbied Congress. We testified in front of the House and Senate five times. We, at one of the hearings, someone who was a director in the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy was in the audience, emailed us and asked for a call. We, of course, thought when we saw the White House on the email that it was one of our friends pulling a joke but it wasn't. It was actually a real person. We had a chance to start working closely with the Obama White House on that. When it passed, finally after 460 days of, of work, we were in the Rose Garden of the, of the White House when President Obama signed that into law. It was an incredible experience of helping the sausage get made in D.C. The, the process wasn't over then because you passed the law, then it goes to the SEC, then you have to make rules. And the rulemaking took four additional years before it was fully implemented. And then still spending some time on this ever since and trying to help advocate for increasing the amounts of money you can invest and receive from all investors.
1: So it's been a few years since your work has now manifested into the practice in, in business. Is the impact the way you anticipated when you first started? Are startups able to raise money much more easily? Are investors able to access opportunities and invest in startups much more easily the way you expected? So regulation crowdfunding or equity-based
0: crowdfunding did not begin in the United States until the middle of 2016, so just less than five years ago. And since that time, almost a billion dollars has been invested by over half a million investors into 4,000 companies. And those companies are in in over 1,100 cities across the United States. And over 40% of the founding teams of those companies include women and minorities, 40%. It's a very different number than what VCs invest in. And it's created tens of thousands of jobs. And because of the recent changes in the amounts of money you can raise from different types of online investing, we're, I believe we'll see close to 1.5 billion over the next 12 months that are invested through these vehicles.
1: Wow. This is a substantial change indeed. This one act alone has probably brought far more diversity into the venture capital ecosystem compared to maybe decades of work that people have done.
0: The new limits, everybody should be aware of this because it's important. As of the 15th of March of 2021, startups and small businesses can now raise up to $5 million from retail investors in a a round. It used to be 1 million, now it's 5 million. So you can raise a proper seed round online. And then there's another provision of the JOBS Act called Regulation A+, which allows you to raise a growth round up to $75 million from both accredited and retail investors publicly. These are massive changes they will have massive impact over the next you know 5 to 10 years and really opening up the private capital markets probably one of the most successful and well known raises that occurred in the last 2 weeks since the rules changed was gumroad sahil was able gumroad was able to raise 5 million dollars in 24 hours from about 7000 investors
1: yeah that's a phenomenal event indeed it's a big milestone for the entire community
0: yeah and wefunder just posted 40 yc companies who are passed through YC, who are now raising crowdfunding from
1: the public. Wow. They've come a long way mm. since that uh, conversation you had at the wedding. <laughs> yeah. How did you choose to be a VC in the fintech space and what attracted you?
0: So I moved from healthcare to fintech with the JOBS Act. Then we started doing a lot of, I started doing, before I got into VC, I started doing a lot of uh, advisory work with governments and regulators around the world. I've worked with I've worked in over forty countries around the world with regulators, with government agencies and ministries, uh, with central banks, with fintech entrepreneurs and financial institutions, really helping to think about how do you create fintech policy and regulation that achieves three things that achieves job creation, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Because for many countries, it the financial laws are what's holding back economic development. So that just got me into this world of financial services, regulation, fintech. And then I was very lucky because one of my speaking engagements in Hong Kong met my now partners with Vector Ventures. They were just putting together the Vector Ventures one fund. This is in 2014. And I was very fortunate in them asking me to join them as a venture partner, helping them to look at fintech deals for their sector agnostic strategy. That's how it got in. And then because of the performance of our fintech uh, portfolio in that fund one, We decided it made sense to put a dedicated pool of capital and a full-time effort behind the fintech strategy. And we we launched that fund in October 2019.
1: What kind of companies do you focus on for your investments? What stage, what sectors do you focus on? So we look at seed and
0: series A companies, and we look really in in three areas. We actually do mostly B2B and B2B2C business models, because that's where Myself and my other co-managing partner have our experience. And in three categories, infrastructure, all the backend connectivity, APIs, Rails, and rules. Number two is private capital markets. Think of that really broadly, trying to make the public, the private markets, moving them online. I mean, it's always annoying when people are still passing around PDFs for printing and signing <laughs> with the deals we do. How do we make these deals more efficient and effective? And then the third category is AI, blockchain, and quantum opportunities in the financial services and insurance spaces.
1: So can you give me an example of a company you met and how was the conversation? What was the context? What did you ask? What got you excited about the company?
0: Yeah, there's this one company in our, I mean, the first one that pops to mind is a company called Axern. They're a no-code AI platform for financial services and insurance firms. They've, They've verticalized AI and trained all their models really to deliver fast value And kind of the time to value is exponentially better than the traditional larger AI providers. The things that attracted me were the founders' expertise, the depth that the team brought of their experience in data science. Number two, they had, by the time we invested in them, they were at the Series A, they had been through the ups and downs of the seed stage and were incredibly resilient and incredibly focused. They took Feedback really well. And my job is to provide feedback, and their job is to make the decision and move forward with whatever they think the best decision is. And then just their ability to achieve the milestones over time that they said they would. Really, really proud of what they've done and really excited to be a part of the team.
1: How's the company doing today? Did it play out the way you expected?
0: They're doing great. They've had 5x net revenue increase over the last 12 months, raising their Series B. And they're hiring an incredible team. They really, they really are beginning to scale into that kind of Series B level.
1: It's super exciting to see. What I'm hearing is have a plan, describe it very clearly, execute on the plan, and show that things are working, and that gets you excited.
0: Yeah, that's right. We look for founder market fit a lot. That's something that we certainly look at. And we look at trying to understand how people think about things. We look at the ability to build teams, the ability to think deeply about the problem. I want to learn something about the problem and the market you're in in our first couple of meetings. I should not know more about this than you do. <laughs> <laughs> i should I should be the student in the conversation, helping to help out where I help out. but that that's really what's exciting to me is learning something new in every conversation.
1: Roughly, how many companies do you invest in in an average year? How frequent do you make these investments and what's the typical geography that you prefer to invest in? So we've been around for a year and a half in this this
0: current fund. We've made 10 investments, five in North America and five in Asia. Those are our two kind of primary geographies. We've been, because of my work in the Middle East over the last few years and my network there, we've been really spending some time there as well because of some of the Major changes taking place in the region, and I'm super excited about a lot of that ecosystem.
1: How has COVID changed in the past year, and how has your work changed? You mentioned that you'd like to be the student in the conversation. Has it become an easy for you to be a student, or has it become more difficult for you in certain ways as a student in this conversation with an entrepreneur? I mean,
0: the biggest change with COVID for me has been my passport sits dusty in a drawer. And I'm not traveling nearly as much as I used to. I used to be on the road 60 to 70% of the time. That ability to be out in the world and face-to-face with people, I miss that a lot and looking forward to some, that returning to my life in some form. Human beings are highly adaptable when, when they need to be. We've all sort of gotten accustomed to treating Zoom as a real conversation. And there's obviously differences in that. And we all, many of us, I guess I would say, or I'll speak for myself, me, I miss the ability to have face-to-face and I look forward to getting back to that. But we have not slowed down our meetings. We've continued to invest during COVID and we will continue to invest. It's our, our LPs depending on us to do that.
1: This business is definitely a relationship-focused business. It's really hard to build those relationships when you're sitting at a desk and your passport is not being used, that's a challenge indeed. I'm curious if the entrepreneurs have adapted and they have changed so that they make it easier for you. Can you give examples of entrepreneurs that have done well? Yeah,
0: I mean, some of this stuff sounds super basic, but it bears repeating because there are a lot of people that don't do the basic things right. Number one is send me the deck or something in advance of the, the, the first meeting. It's shocking to me, the number of founders who don't send me anything in advance, probably because you're thinking whatever it is they have is so super top secret, they don't want it to to leak onto the world. And the thing that I've told entrepreneurs literally all over the world is that your idea is worth nothing. What becomes valuable is your execution of your idea. And that's what is truly unique in the world is your ability to execute on this thing that you've created. That's what creates value. That's what creates a company and, and the ability to exit. Send me something. You don't have to send me your crown jewels or the the top secret files, but send me something so that I can orient myself for the call because I'm going to be a better student if I have a, a good sense of who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it. Because then I can spend 20 minutes before the call reviewing your materials, preparing myself. And then instead of you presenting your slides for the 700th time, we can have a conversation
1: Have you made any investments without meeting the entrepreneur in person?
0: I have. One's in the Bay Area, one's in the Pacific Northwest, neither are publicly announced. What I'll say, though, is just they were both warm referrals from people that I knew uh, in the real world, and they both were just incredibly compelling founders who were just rock solid in their experience, who had taken time and energy to deeply understand the problem they're trying to solve, who knew far more about each problem than I knew, and had done a lot of work to build the business as far as they could before raising capital. They it wasn't just I've got a PowerPoint and now I'm gonna see if I can fish for cash and see what happens. But they had done a lot of work over a period of time, put some of their own cash in as well as sweat equity, and had really logical, rational plans
1: for how they're going to build a business. So you see that in their message, this goes beyond the PowerPoint slide deck, the effort that they put in, the risk that they've taken, people they've convinced, co-founders or you know, other vendors and others, that shows in their story that they've put the effort in. They've taken the company to a point where they could independently, and now is the time for funding.
0: Yeah, and I mean, also, I'm sure you've experienced this too, but it's just nice when people have put together a well-organized data room again, it sounds like super basic, but I shouldn't have to ask you for it and you shouldn't send me a couple of random spreadsheets. What about all the incorporation documents? What about your financial statements? I mean, at the seed stage, I'm not expecting to have expertly delivered five years of financial statements, but I want to see what the next 12 months are going to look like. I want to understand how you're thinking about growing the business and half the numbers will end up being wrong 12 months from now. But But really a lot of the exercise is about understanding how you're thinking about business and how you're planning to execute. So a couple of other examples of entrepreneurs we've invested in and where we've met at different points in the journey. And it doesn't matter where you've met. There are many different ways to meet people. Both of the two other companies I just described were warm intros from people that we we knew well. And then another example was from a, a founder that we've invested in. We met because he was one of the people that came up to me after a speaking engagement. We've all done these speaking engagements and there's typically a line of people who wanna to talk to you after you finish and they all say they're gonna follow up and almost none do. This gentleman did. He said, can I come see you tomorrow at your office? I said, sure. He was in from New York, I'm in San Francisco. His name's Anand Gomes. He's founder of Paradigm, which is a crypto derivative platform for institutional investors. We met five years ago. We began having conversations five years ago about this idea he had for revolutionizing the OTC commodities markets. He did not know about startups, but he knew a lot about the commodity markets and the OTC markets and how broken they were and how much they needed technology. Over the course of the first three years of us knowing each other, it was really just talking every month or two, helping him to form his thinking, to to shape what he wanted to do, to follow his progress, to be supportive where I could with information and network. Then after three years, he was ready to raise money, and I was the first institutional check in. And because yeah, we knew each other extremely well, I was incredibly impressed by his work ethic and, and uh, his deep understanding of the problem and his ability to build a huge network in that space. And now he's, over the last nine months, he's done over $26 billion in transaction flow with his product among institutional investors. It's amazing what he's done. Built a team of almost 30 and just doing incredibly, incredibly well. So a super focused, super disciplined entrepreneur.
1: This is a great story of how an entrepreneur met you without knowing you before and met you at a public event and followed up, built the relationship. And then you got very impressed by how they were building the business and you invested in the company. It looks like the company is doing really well.
0: Yeah, they're doing great. We're just incredibly honored to be a part on the team of that company as well. It was our first outside check in, in, the, in the FinTech fund. We're excited about where they're headed. And then a different experience is a company that was in Taiwan and Hong Kong, which is called EMQ. They are a cross-border money solution. You can think of them as replacing Swift. What's incredible about them is they are the pipes for Alipay, WeChat Pay, and PayPal across Asia. They're actually the ones who move the money. They are in almost 90 countries today, and they'll they'll be at over 150 countries by the end of 2021. And they are incredibly successful at what they do and do some stuff in some really unique ways and are, are a B2B solution for that. We met them through one of our partner's family friends, through a social interaction with someone who'd been friend of a friend, known each other for a long time, completely unrelated to tech or, or fintech. But over the course of some period of time, got to know the, the, the founders. And, and that's another way that things come, have come in. I mean, I don't know about you, Gopi, but I mean, the amount of serendipity that's occurred in my life is pretty astounding. <laughs> it's just like the thing, one of the things I've definitely learned in this business and in it's just in entrepreneurship generally is say yes. Say yes as often as you can to things because that's how you build your network.
1: That's how you build your understanding. That's how you create success. Yeah, I feel the best way to be successful in venture capital is to have a prepared mind and wait for the right opportunity. And then magic happens.
0: Yeah, I definitely err on the side of taking more meetings, not
1: less, because I'd rather, as long as I'm learning something and I'm trying to add value to the conversation. Is there an example of a company where things didn't pan out the way you expected? What happened?
0: I can tell you about, about one, of my, one of my entrepreneurial failures. Back in 2001, we thought we had this great idea to build physician-patient communication online. What that looked like was kind of websites for doctors and hospitals. Layering on secure email, the doctors could get paid for, it. and then layering on top of that, medication compliance and adherence, which is a massive, massive problem in, in healthcare for decades. We tried to do it in 2001 and 2002. What I can tell you is that that was a terrible idea because we were at least a decade too early. That experience really taught me a lot about market timing and market timing risk. And for me personally, of all the risks that we look at as VCs, that's the one I have the least tolerance for and my least
1: ability my least willingness to risk is market timing yeah, that's one of the hardest things to predict will the market arrive if you build will they come yeah this is a very fascinating conversation that you're giving me lots of examples of uh, real life stories here if you were to change one thing in venture capital what would you do what would you change you already talked about Jobs Act and you've already made the change happen, which has benefited hundreds of thousands of people. But if there's one more thing that you could do, what would you do?
0: The next thing that that is going to be happening in the private capital markets, and I, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen or when, but I it will, and I'm ready to do whatever I can to be helpful in it, is creating secondary liquidity for private securities. That's something that's been... People have taken a run out many times. I mean, obviously, if you had pre-IPO Uber or Airbnb or Facebook shares, there was a market for those and you could liquidate. But for most people and most companies, that's more difficult for a whole bunch of reasons. But that the changes we're seeing in the financial markets broadly, if you look at the, the decline in the number of public companies, which is brought around because of the cost and the time involved and the, and the pricing concerns so that brought on the rise of direct listings, that's brought about the rise of SPACs. SPACs are a good thing for the market. It's obviously there's probably too many of them right now, but that doesn't mean they're all bad. That we will we will return we'll to a level of, of normalcy in that SPAC market, but that, that that's here to stay. And it's a good tool at the right time for the right company. And like anything, right? It's not always right for everything. But it's, it's, that secondary equity is really important.
1: Yeah, getting access to capital for founders when they're raising money is one part of the equation. But the other part of the equation is can you generate liquidity? A robust secondary market where early investors and founders can have access to liquidity events would be very helpful.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. Just to give you a data point, there are now more companies that have raised crowdfunding than are on the NASDAQ. That, is, that will continue to grow. As there are more companies and those companies grow, as companies become more successful, there will become a market for that. It will probably take a few years to get there, but there's going to be, over the next five years, that will occur.
1: Well, let's hope that happens. That future would open up lots of opportunities for you know, people who aren't participating in this asset class. So I'm looking forward to that. I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there an organization you are passionate about?
0: The thing that I'm passionate about, and I've spent a lot of time on a pro bono basis working on, is entrepreneurship. I would say the, the closest thing that entrepreneurs have to a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., is The Small Business and Entrepreneurship Council, and Karen Kerrigan, who runs that organization, she was instrumental in us getting the Jobs Act passed, and she's been a passionate supporter of entrepreneurs for you know over two decades. Another center that I work with on this is the Berkeley uh, Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology, It's in the College of Engineering at UC Berkeley, and some of the work that they're doing there is is really fascinating as well. One of the programs that they have, super cool, is focused on training engineers to be entrepreneurs, and they do it. So these are people who probably never made a B in their lives, who are incredibly smart, but probably have never failed. Pushing them into failure situations and, and teaching them resilience in those moments is a really powerful and high-impact exercise. But that plus a whole lot of other work that they
1: do is super interesting. Well, this is great. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing so many of your stories, especially starting with your Jobs Act uh, initiative, how you plowed through various bureaucratic processes to make it happen. And it's now had an impact on many startups and many investors who have now access to equity crowdfunding that was previously unavailable. And many examples that you gave about startups and what you look for in these entrepreneurs, how you make these investments and how those stories play out later, that's also really fascinating to hear. Well, thank you very much for sharing your stories and insights. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Thank you so much, Kopi.